Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. The demands are clear. Government-run Medicare for all, state wealth taxes and income tax hikes, and defunding the police. Those are just three of the demands that One Teachers Union, United Teachers Los Angeles, have set out as conditions to return to classrooms this fall. Today, I'm joined by Daniel DeSalvo, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and professor of political science at the City College of New York, to discuss the ongoing debate over schools in the fall and the role of the teachers' unions in keeping them closed and keeping cities under lockdown. Dan, you wrote an op-ed for The Wall Street Journal with a subheadline that teachers' unions, quote, may attempt to hold the economy hostage in the school non-reopening process. I'd say that prediction has borne out in recent weeks, yes? Well, it's certainly a huge national debate. Uh, when I wrote the op-ed, that was, you could say, just the tip of the iceberg for what's opened up to be now a, a major, major controversy uh, across the country about what's going to happen with K-12 schools. And then, so what do you think is leading the teachers' unions to be so firm in their opposition, even to part-time or half-time uh, returns to classrooms? I mean, we have the teachers' union in Fairfax County, Virginia, sort of right outside Washington, D.C. Uh, in some of their public statements, they've set a COVID transmission threshold to return to work um, of zero community spread, which would necessitate closing schools down every flu season. Yeah, I think, well, the big reason is they the teachers unions have leverage and they are responding to uh, members demand that is the, those that they represent it's important to re remember that a, a significant slice um, more than a quarter of all teachers are over 50 and as we know um, COVID-19 affects people who are older more more severely or more seriously and in addition older teachers tend to be those who are most active in uh, union uh, in unions in their local mm -hmm. school district in that sense they're the ones who vote in union elections and therefore mm -hmm. leadership that tends to be the most responsive to them on top of all that i do believe this uh, in fairness to the teachers and to the teachers unions uh, there is a genuine concern not just for the safety of teachers who the unions represent but for all school employees and that's a paramount concern especially in states where um, covid cases are rising um yeah, no, and and then that is that is fair, but then of course on on the on the flip side, you have the question of the students themselves, who at least in the sort of K to six grades uh, appear to be at at an exceptionally low risk. That's right, and so you know how this is a, a, a math. Let's uh, let's just step back for a second and say that uh, American uh, K-12 public education is not known as one of the more nimble and flexible institutions. So being put on the hook to immediately make dramatic changes in scheduling and the use of space um, is obviously a, a significant and major uphill challenge at the same time that there's been such a dramatic cratering of uh, local revenues to support schools. So much is going to hinge, I think, on the federal government's response here in phase four um, of what aid Congress is going to be considering for, for school districts that we're seeing action on that now in Washington. Mm -hmm. In some ways, prior to that, the teachers union held a very strong hand to say, look, there's no money uh, for protective equipment uh, to aid us, not for you know budget shortfalls that mm -hmm. are entirely due to the pandemic. It's unrealistic to ask us to open without uh, some infusion of resources. But do you think that if if they did get some, if if some resources come out in this phase phase four package, that you 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 see that as a as a way to sort of pry 
pry some of the the resistance open? Yeah, I, well, I think you know the uh, officials, you know, from the local all the way to the federal level who want to try to open their schools uh, will be in a much stronger position to say, well, we've uh, contributed the resources that we need to make the kinds of adjustments that we need to make, provide protective equipment, repurpose classrooms, um, compensate teachers for use of their own, uh, say, computers Mm -hmm. and printers and office things if they're teaching remotely. Uh, So we've taken that step. And but Without taking that step, I think it puts other officials in a weaker bargaining position and certainly a weaker bargaining position in the public eye. Um, if, you're, if the teachers unions are still holding out after that, um, you know, you, I you think, think you think that that would, strength, that, you, that would strengthen the uh, an outside campaign to to get to help get schools back open. I think that's right. And, and and sort of building off that question of public opinion, the teachers unions are kind of, have have had a good couple of years in public opinion with some of their strikes in 2018, 2019 that I don't think people are uh, necessarily very familiar with. Can you give us a little background on that? Yeah, well, there was a, a two really two one big wave followed by a, a smaller wave. The the big wave of strikes occurred in. Uh, what were primarily what were called red state strikes, um, states that where Republicans are stronger in in state government, in Arizona most notably, but also North Carolina, um, Colorado, and here the issue was that teachers unions, which were not seen as you know perennial powerhouses in those states, unlike say my home state of New York. Um, and they gained a, a great deal of public sympathy by strikes or walkouts um, and there was a move in, say, in Arizona, for example, to raise pay. That initial wave was then followed by a series of smaller uh, labor actions and strikes in a number of blue cities, including Chicago and Los Angeles. Um, again, the, for the most part, the way this played out in public opinion was highly favorable. Um, was highly favorable to the teachers in general and to teachers' unions. Do you have a Do you have a supposition as to why that was? I mean, was it just that the teachers had a good case, or do you think that it was the the nature of the states, or, or what, what was going on there? Well, I think lots of particularities in each state. You know, in some of these states, they were the states that had um, done the least to uh, increase spending post the Great Recession. Really, they they hadn't really cut education spending, but they hadn't certainly returned it to a kind of uh, upward trajectory, and that had held a number of salaries down. Um, and that, of course, creates sympathy. Teachers felt like they're not being paid well. And then mm-hmm. if you compare it across the country, you know, uh, some of these states did pay some of the lowest salaries um, in the nation. So that, I think, was a, a strong hand in those instances. Uh, part of this whole story, both uh, the reopening question and the strike story uh, that we haven't mentioned is one of the big problems with uh, education budgets has been the rising cost of pensions. And this is gonna be a factor, you know, come this coming academic uh, school year. And that is that, you know, many of these states increases, spending is increasing on education, but that spending isn't it's, reaching it's the going, classroom. It's going, to, it is going to retirement funds. It's not going to, to classroom education. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have we have all this, you know, in mind. We know that there's the pension, the the pension funding problem. There's revenue shortfalls. Uh, teachers unions have this leverage. I mean, 
what can what can parents, what can public uh, members of the public, uh, what what can we do? Uh, we can't stay locked down forever. Parents are going to need to go back to work at some point. There's a lot of evidence that, especially at the lower grades, the Zoom classes don't work. Kids are falling behind. Uh, we know that kids, to the extent that it's been observed in Europe and it's been observed uh, in countries that have uh, at least partially reopened their schools, uh, aren't at particular risk from from the COVID. Um, how do we work around the roadblock that teachers unions are creating? I know we mentioned uh, reopening, re- you know, uh, a federal tranche of resources earlier, but is there anything else uh, in your opinion? I think that's that's the the big thing there. And I also think that shoring up everybody's sense of insecurity. Uh, local officials, I think, are on really have to give parents a sense that uh, sending their child to school is going to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's the number one thing. There can't be any movement to pressure anyone aside from people's economic distress. And I don't think any parent wants to say, well, I have to send my kid into, into school, even if I don't right. want you, to. You don't wanna, you, people to don't work. want to be put in that, in that position where they're fully squeezed. Exactly. So, you know, there has to be reassurance um, from public officials that the right balance is being struck. And again, I think there's not going to be, nor should there be, a one-size-fits-all approach here. Lots of states are in very different circumstances, mm-hmm. even different parts of different states. You know, well, and then and then there and then there's, the, and then there's the question of some some families may have different needs than other families. I mean, obviously, if let's say you have a multi-generational household. You know, if grandma's living with you, you might want to stay more locked down than if uh, than if she isn't, um, in which case you might be able more more readily able to reopen. So having an option for multi-generational households, for uh, households where someone may have a susceptibility where, while allowing the broader um, the, the broader student population. Uh, to at least partially return. Yeah, I think exactly those sorts of, not only in, are you going to need different approaches and in different places just due to the physical plants of schools and things uh, of that nature, but I think you're also going to have to have different options even inside the same school for people whose home lives and home right. circumstances vary quite dramatically. Right. Well, uh, before we go, uh, Dan, I have to promote something you wrote several years ago. Uh, the Union That Rules New York, your city journal piece on the history of 1199 SCIU, the powerful healthcare union in New York State. Uh, that I have told people that that is one of the best pieces of writing on labor history that has not not written by a from the pro-labor union perspective. So I, I just have to I have to commend that to our listeners. <laughs> Uh, briefly. Well, I've touched that you 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 remember that essay. Um, it was a it's a fascinating fascinating story and a fascinating history. And obviously, uh, very expensive Medicaid program it continues to bedevil budget makers here in New York State. Well, thank you for your time, Daniel DeSalvo. That's our show for this week. We encourage you to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five star rating. We'll see you next week.